You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players and all about strategy, leveling up and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Welcome back to episode 119 of Arsenal Pass. Hayden Dow here with the one, Brennan Patrick. Mm. Brennan, you're going to be playing Nationals this year. I want to know, how's your testing for Nationals going? <laughs> well, I just found out I was playing, so it's not going great. Uh, <laughs> but I have found some people to test with. Uh, I think the, the group, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know why I don't feel comfortable like saying the names yet. It's probably fine. But I feel like with my group, it's a little bit dangerous. You know, like a, a few of these players have an affinity towards a certain hero that's uh, a bit spicy. <laughs> and, you know, when you get a lot of those people in a room together, it tends to not go great. Yeah. They really do cook. Um, they cook. Um, but yeah, Hayden, honestly, the, the marquee event of my past week or so has been, I'm starting to get over that sickness. I was very sick. It was bad. It really sucked, man. I don't know what happened, but. You know, I had like a sinus infection, went to like kind of a chest infection or whatever, but man, just mentally, it made me feel so off and so foggy. I think it was just because all the congestion in my head, but it was, mm. it sucked, dude. Oof. Oh, glad to see Brendan Patrick back to 90% of Brendan Patrick. Yeah. Uh, this is interesting. You're just talking about you playing nationals. This would be like the first big event that we haven't tested together or like, because we're not playing it together as well. So mm. it's going to be like an interesting, I mean, I'm sure we'll still converse and, and talk, but it's, um, you know, all the pro tours that we've both played in, uh, all the callings that we've both played in. Well, we still have worlds. We still have worlds. We still have worlds. We'll yeah. always have Barcelona. Yeah, we still have worlds. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. I don't exactly know how I'm going to take it yet. If I'm going to try to take it a bit more casual and play something that I genuinely enjoy, or I might end up on the spike deck. I think I will avoid, like, if, if Lexi is the best deck, which I'm not saying it is by any means, but just snapshot of last minute, let's say we fast forward, I probably would avoid playing that deck, to be honest. I, I also think that, you know, when possible, I end up on the deck that beats the deck rather than the deck. I only end up mm-hmm. on the deck if it is overwhelmingly the best deck. Yeah, I mean, that's always been our philosophy, I think. Yeah. I am trying my darndest <laughs> to avoid playing Lexi. Uh, I mean, this week in Flesh and Blood, getting into some Nationals testing, really trying to get nice nose to the grindstone. Dust of Dawn is out now uh, and trying to learn as much about what this format could look like, you know, kind of putting the limited to the side a little bit with Monarch and really starting to focus on Class Constructed. Played a bit of, you know, I played a bit of everything, honestly, this week. Had a look at Leviah, going back to Icelander for like Viserai, mm, nice. you know, Lexi, of course. Like it just, it's just everything uh, in an attempt to work out, you know, what I think is powerful. And this format looks like it. I mean, we're about to see Battleheart in Cincinnati. Uh, well, actually, by the time this pod releases, because we're recording early, Brendan, it would have already happened. We've got the calling coming up next weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time this releases, it's going to be really interesting to see what the early meta shakes out look like because you know we say this often i know oh, things look open but this really does look open we've had ultim living legend lexi is like yes i still think the deck to beat but there are other things out there so yeah it's been an interesting start to testing process i'm very excited to see um you know with this upcoming battle hard and like you said it'll be over by the time this is out but i'm excited to see the decks that are coming from that i mean dust till dawn is very much a set where i i very much appreciate somebody else building the initial decks for mm. me and then i'll go from there because it's it is deep. a yeah no it is a mind bender especially when you're looking at prism and you know even even levia to an extent like it's like how am I going to break this? Because it seems like it can be broken, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Bolton, you know? Maybe, no, not that maybe one. Not. No. Vincent, that's, that's a real Vincent's that's the a real one. Now, Vincent's as... the for one where I, I don't even hate not. I just like, I don't even know where to go with it. Like, uh, is it even worth it? Do I just let somebody else get the framework and then we can go from there with Vincent? Because that is, that is the real thinker. Well, this is episode 119 of Arsenal Pass. The main topic of the pod, we are talking to 
uh, senior game designer for Flesh and Blood, Brian Gottlieb, who pretty made it, it's a bit of a spoiler for the interview, but not really. He made it pretty abundantly clear. He wasn't going to talk to us about Vincent and, uh, you know, the, the gameplay sort of, I you know, maybe the fundamentals between behind what they thought for Vincent because he wants players to work it out themselves. I think mm-hmm. that kind of says maybe all you need to know about the, the, the puzzle that Vincent will be in this format. Yeah, I do have to say there is a very special little nugget in this in this talk we have with him. So please get through it. And if you're if you have any interest in where the future of flesh and blood design is going and how it will impact you as a casual player or a competitive player, you better listen to the whole thing because he drops an absolute bomb. Yeah, just conveniently right at the end of the interview as well. Well, well you can't tell him where it is. <laughs> well, it's close. Don't, That's what I was saying. It's close to the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great interview. Uh, so that is the main topic of the poll. We are talking flesh and blood design. We throw a lot of, well, Brendan in particular, throws a lot of hardball questions at Brian when it comes to the design of Dust of Dawn, of, you know, the future of flesh and blood. You know, there's a lot of nuggets in there as well. A few particular heroes of where you may want to look for building these for the new class constructed uh, format as well. As Brian does talk about, you know, all the heroes in Dust of Dawn as well as other heroes and kind of fundamentals and philosophy behind Flesh and Blood. Uh, I guess, Brendan, you know, we are recording early, so nothing really to share in the news. Of course, we did talk about the announcement of Worlds in Barcelona. We're both definitely going to be there. Uh, so look forward to seeing players there. Um, I don't know anything else that we need to make sure we cover before we get into the main topic of the pod. No command cook out this question this week, Brennan, but if you do want to get them in, you can drop them in the YouTube comments below. We have had a couple in the past two weeks. There were some in the last episode, a couple of great questions. But if you do want to get your question, drop them in the YouTube comments below. You can uh, tweet at us. You can email us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com or if you're a arsenal pass patron you can drop it in the patreon discord as well mm-hmm. nothing else for me it's 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 a long interview but like i said it's packed with value so sit back relax enjoy and for the main topic of the pod we're joined by the man the myth the legend brian gottlieb brian thank you so much for coming back on the podcast very happy to have you um can i can i just lead in can i you're living in auckland right now is that correct uh, yeah, I, I am in Auckland right now. I don't know how to quantify it as whether I'm, yeah. I'm living here or not. I'm just in an Airbnb, and I'm in a very strange Airbnb, uh, which is why you don't see my shining face and why things maybe sound a little warehousey. That's, mm. that's kind of the only way I can describe where I'm presently staying. Yeah. Um, is it, yeah, I'm here now. Is this like, is it sort of your next step in working with LSS? Are you, you're now splitting time between, the, um, between Auckland and the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it's already very close to that. I, I basically am slightly less than a 50-50 split, but mm-hmm. just trying to set things up where it's easier and easier to spend more time here. Uh, and, you know, I come down now and I stay in Airbnbs, which is it's fine. And, you know, you make it work, but I'm looking to get something a little bit more permanent here, given how much time I spend here mm-hmm. and how often I go back and forth. Yeah, and for for the people that don't know, what is your role at LSS? Like, um, I know I think people sort of—that's a good question. Yeah, I I think we know the high level of like you know game design, but is is there anything past that? Anything deeper? And what parts of design? Because I know there's you know there's different levels, right? There's the people that are game testing and the people that actually develop the cards. What what do you do? Yeah, so I was I was doing an interview with uh, Polygon the other day, and I, I just had to go to James. I'm like, I, I have to tell them something. Like, what what am I? I? I don't really know what I am, and it doesn't matter. Like, I just come and I do my work, and I don't care what my job title is. Uh, but we settled on I think uh, senior game designer. So that is that is my official title now with LSS, kind of sort of, and. Uh, yeah, I, I work on a lot of the aspects of design and development. I'm involved in the early process, you know, some of the 
making something from nothing and mm. rounding out the ideas. And then I'm involved in the late plot process too, balancing user experience, making sure environments are fun, uh, you know, balanced, all those things. I'm involved in uh, format health discussions, involved in format changes, all that kind of stuff. Anything that like touches specifically playing the game. Uh, the stuff I don't really have a lot to do is with, although, you know, I'm occasionally asked for feedback is like OP structure and, you know, event booking, things like that. That's, that's pretty far operations. Yeah. All that stuff is. <laughs> I, I, I think you get asked the questions lives. anyway. I do. I do. I get a lot of the questions, <laughs> which is fine. Like I, I get it. Like I have a larger social media presence than a lot of the folks at LSS. And so the, the questions are by default going to come to me. Um, but I had to tell people there's just, I'm just not the right person to answer those questions. There's way better people to point them to. And, uh, there is a contact site on the LSS website. So uh, you should, if you have questions, go find those folks and they'll give you better answers than I will. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your, the progression of you working with LSS? I know you initially came on as a contractor, I believe working in design, but I mean, that was what, maybe a year plus ago. I, I, I just remember when we first had you on the podcast was the Brian Gottlieb tweet, uh, was tweeting all these pictures of gauntlet decks that you had set up and you were playing the game. You were very excited about it, but now it seems like you're, you're quite deep. How did you sort of get in touch with LSS and then progress to the role that you're in right now? Yeah, mostly just shit posting on Twitter and like just being loud. That works. And just, okay. Yeah, it does occasionally. Um, but James just reached out to me, and you know, we we got to talking, found a lot of commonality and a lot of respect for each other, and uh, just started collaborating on things. And it, like you said, the first time was with Dynasty, and I was just brought in as kind of like a late stage contractor to review some things and give some input on things that were not quite working all that well, and. Things went well through that process. Uh, our ideas gelled very quickly. A lot of that became uh, metastasized in to Arachne, which, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you like wanted to be critical of of someone's first design for Ray, I can understand why you would be critical of Arachne. But I'm really I'm really proud of that hero, and it's going to do more in the future as we see like heroes scale up over time. And I think the theming, the vibes, like how the assassin class actually works, all that stuff is a big hit, even if Arachne is not a particularly strong hero in the metagame. Um, so things like grew from there, you know, we worked successfully on Dynasty. And after that, I made my first trip down to Auckland to work in person on Outsiders. And that I was involved with from the beginning and just kind of sculpting together with James, the broad limited environment, and then working with Dev to get everything over the line. And now it's just become uh, a, a constant. I am deeply involved in all parts of design and development. And I, I love it, man. It, mm. It's honestly my dream job. Yeah, so I know when, when people come into a game studio like LSS, they often will not be working on sort of the next set that comes into consumers' hands or even sets that maybe you know some of the players are familiar with. What sets did you feel like you had the biggest impact on immediately? Like what set is the, the Brian Gottlieb set? so far like it's definitely out, outsiders so far yeah that's that's the one where i was involved like from the beginning and all aspects of that that was ground out with just like me and james sitting in his home and figuring out how we wanted to do this new kind of take on limited and getting all the theming right and and the bones of it and just playing games against each other till we had a really functional set a really exciting set and then obviously it's the dev team and the art team and everyone involved in lss who brings it over the finish line um, but that's the one where I was really in it from from the beginning and, and 
you know, I, I feel like a very large attachment to that set. It feels to me like my first set for sure. Mm-hmm. That, that, that brings me to a question actually Brian as sets from Alice's perspective are they worked on sequentially this is a question I've always had about how, how you look at game design especially in the TCG are you working on sets sequentially as they would be released or it, it depends it, it, do, it does depend like there's there's stuff that is in the tank for the future that is kind of out of order there's stuff that is being worked on sequentially so it, it really just depends on what makes sense a lot of where like inspiration takes you right like if you have an idea sometimes you just need to chase that idea down you can't get it out of your head and things will work that way sometimes especially in the early design fronts like that's very much how things go and then you know when you get to like development work it's a little bit more time-based structural because obviously you have publication deadlines and things you want to get released in a certain order so Mm. uh, that's that's when the schedule tightens up a bit can you sort of explain to me like i'm you know five-year-old what the diff what the difference is exactly between design and development because i noticed that you sort of partition them into two separate things right there yeah so it's i'll say this it's looser in lss than i think some other places because our dev team is very active in design our design team is very active in development like there is a good back and forth that happened between the two but the way i conceptualize it is that design is there to present the idea to tell you you know, here is a hero that is stealthy and the mechanic is the card comes face down and they can swap it with another card and they lean on this this dagger to soften defenses and they're supposed to play a very mid-range style and here's these support cards. And then you go to dev and you go, make this into something real, like make this work, make this balanced, make it make sense under the rules, make it contextually fun to play, make it uh, a hero that is falling at a point on the spectrum that we're comfortable with as far as power level, like all that fine tuning really comes from the dev side. Mm. Awesome. Well, I want to ask you, speaking of limited sets, I want to ask you about a sort of new limited set, but an old new limited set in Monarch. Have you had any experience personally drafting Monarch? I drafted Monarch once. Okay. And it was at LSS. It, it was literally like we just went back and did some Monarch and uh, you know, kind of for funsies and monikers after the time I started, like you guys know, I was, mm-hmm. I was finding the game right at the tail end of Monarch. I was only engaging with constructed at that point. And then it was tales of Aria limited season. And that's where I really dove into the limited side of things. So I, I'm doing catch up work on, on Monarch limited right now. I very much need to still learn the format. And uh, when I say doing catch up work, I mean, I have absolutely no time to do catch up work but <laughs> at some point before nationals. I will have to find uh, a place to do that. Yeah, I would really like specifically, I maybe we're not there yet in terms of how much you've engaged with the format, but I would like to hear sort of your thoughts on Monarch as a competitively viable limited format, you know, comparing it to something like Outsiders, a format that you worked on a lot that, pe- that was very, very well received, especially from the competitive community. Do you think that you have enough knowledge around Monarch to sort of compare them um, in a competitive setting? Do you think Monarch? Monarch will hold up at that nationals level to provide experiences as robust as we got in something like Outsiders? I do think it holds up, and in part because there's uh, a lot of depth there. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of really intricate drafting decisions that hold up Monarch. And when you get to the gameplay, it can be a swingier experience, I think. It's not so much grinding out value as it was in Outsiders and playing these really tight games over and over. There are games you just get blown out of the water. There's you know, sizing mismatches in a lot of ways. There's just the whole uh, Spectra into Leviah setup, which has always been very, or excuse me, uh, Phantasm into Leviah setup, which has always been very weird to me. Like, it's just a, a strange thing to kind of make the basis of your set. But ultimately, 
it leads to a really, really interesting draft environment. And then again, those highs of the games, like the best games you play in Monarch, they're really, really good. And I think there's a higher number of non-games, but that ceiling is still right there where you can play incredible, incredible games of limited. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I think in Monarch, it's it's interesting, you know, going back to a set where uh, you can stay so open in generics and, you know, the Monarch equipment being so powerful, you know, stars and it starts in play, stay, stays in play. But then you have this dichotomy between the the light and the shadow heroes. But also when you take into this this meta aspect of the format, which is, you know, a general player, a player, a general player base proclivity towards the light heroes, and especially something like Prism. It adds a really interesting that holds now. Like, I think that was very true when we first first got to monarch well, mm-hmm. i i wonder if that has loosened up a bit like that's kind of what i'm starting to see i do think it is loosening up and i do think um like i think that will definitely be the case by the time we get to nationals that being said you know playing war of the monarch this week and it, and it could be region based right um i did notice that in my pods and just generally there's probably three pods running around me there there was an affinity towards prism there was also an affinity towards chain actually as well because i think a lot of people have heard about the power level of chain even though it was in constructed chain is sort of this mythical hero of flesh and blood <laughs> at this point that not yeah. a lot of people get to play. So, I mean, my pod has specifically had about three chains in it and three prisms. I still think people look at prism as like the, the, the easiest floor of the format, right? Like that is one of the safer decks. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I bring it back to an a- example of a calling, a, a high level competitive calling that Hayden actually played in where, you know, it was it was six light heroes and two shadow heroes with the, the finals being split between Matt Rogers and Kiki, both on Levia and Shane respectively. So a very, very interesting format. I know the, uh, the pack collation was a bit interesting back then i think maybe yeah, I, I, think, <laughs> I think what happens there is like there's this huge skill gap that has closed in flesh and blood as well like the player base is just so much better and that's not to take anything away from players who were participating early on in that scene many of them have very much proven themselves to be among the best players but they've been joined by a lot of other really really dangerous flesh and blood players and i think the skill cap on putting together a great Leviah deck, a great chain deck. It's just higher. And then piloting mm-hmm. those decks is another step. Like you mm-hmm. have to be able to pilot them efficiency efficiently as well. And I know I will tell you, I've played Monarch limited once I drafted prism. Cause I was like, I just don't know how to do this yet. Like I need to get more experience under my belt before I feel comfortable playing chain, playing Leviah. And I think a lot of people at war of the Monarch very much doing the same thing. But when we get to nationals, I, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. I think it's about the level of of where these drafts are happening, you know, and people getting used to it as well. The the shadow heroes are harder to draft; they're harder to play. It is it just is fact. Um, you know, I think anecdotally, you know, the sort of dozen or so drafts I've done locally, I I haven't drafted Prism yet. Oh, I drafted Prism once, you know, and it really depends because I like to stay open in this in this format, and there are people who prefer to play Prism, which is is fine, you know, and I think that's. But once you get to a level like nationals, like you say, Brian, I think you'll see people come with their strategies. They'll be looking to exploit open Levia seats, open chain seats, et cetera, and uh, make the most of it. I want to ask you both. I want to sort of put a question out there for you both. But I feel like as Flesh and Blood has started to mature, and we've we've you know we've experienced these very competitive limited sets, both as as a result of the design, but also the the growing player base, the growing experience in the player base. I feel like the the standard of having a thirty card deck has become less popular. Obviously, it's more format dependent in some formats rather than others. But do you think that Flesh, like as we progress in limited, you know, we keep playing limited into the future, do you think it'll be less and less correct? 
to actually play those 30 cards. I've just found that, you know, it seems like in Outsiders, it was almost objectively correct to, you know, often play above that. Maybe if you weren't playing, if you're playing a hyper synergistic deck like an Azalea deck, you wouldn't. But it seems like nowadays, everybody's kind of going for that 32, 33, 34. And my, my, my real follow-up question is like, what is the actual correct amount of cards to put in a Flesh and Blood Limited deck? <laughs> yeah, I just think there's there's no hard answer to that question, right? Like that's kind of one of the cool things about Flesh and Blood. And one of the things that has been part of my learning journey with Flesh and Blood, like I came from Magic. I saw people with larger, uh, honestly, both CC and limited decks, like above 60 cards or above 30 cards. I was like, oh, these idiots have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> then I, as I play more, I'm like, oh, I was the idiot here, actually. Like there is a lot of validity to managing fatigue well. Uh, playing with a larger deck size, but it's all contextual. Like it's so dependent on hero. It's so dependent on what your hero's goals are for a particular matchup. It depends on the depth of the card pool in the format you're playing. Like, are, are you forced to play weaker cards to hit that 33, 34 card threshold? Or are you keeping your card power really high? All those things come into play all the time. And I think the range of acceptable deck sizes in Flesh and Blood is something that is very very interesting to me and is a good part of strategic engagement and i think you actually saw that reflected with recent blitz changes honestly like mm. and, and desire to kind of preserve some of that flexibility um you know those are all i'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go through the pod those are all very uh experimental at this point and i don't know what ultimately is going to stick but that's where a lot of that desire came from is just opening up the ability to be expressive with your play and, and look for edges everywhere mm -hmm. yeah Hayden, do you do you have anything to touch on there? I mean, I mean, tell me if I'm wildly off base with because I know in in Outsiders is definitely a thing, but even as I come back to Monarch, it seems like I'm like, oh, I, I much less consider playing thirty cards like I did back when Monarch was originally released. Where I think you and I were both like, you know, went to a lot of pre-releases, we played a lot of limited, and we saw a lot of Prism players try to jam a bunch of cards on their deck and fatigue Shadow Heroes, and it was like it was really bad. But nowadays, you know, my Bolton deck. And it's going to have that 33, 34 cards because if they're if they're good enough that they meet my curve and not playing objectively terrible cards that block for like nothing, then it seems correct most of the time. Yeah, it's I think it's something that we've learned through. We've gone through these different types of limited formats, four hero formats, formats with lower defensive value, formats with 14 card packs. You have less playables to do this with. Maybe you are trying to go above 30, but you might not have the, the card quality. It comes back. I think Brian said it pretty eloquently and I completely agree and I think the kind of backing to it is this philosophical approach to how you think about flesh and blood and it's also meta dependent and even limited formats have metas you know the the way that people might approach Monarch last time to the way they approach now in fact it is it's just it's just different you know people were, weren't thinking about card quality and card economy and the use of their cards the same way that they are now and so that changes the way the format looks like I don't think there's an answer to that question about how many cards is correct I think more and more though playing above 30 cards is subjectively going to be correct to a lot of players depending on on the formats they're playing um so it's a, it's a really interesting question i think it'll mm -hmm. continue to develop and it's not just limited it's also constructed as well and it really comes down to the philosophy of all the things around the particular game that you're about to play from the person sitting across from you from the hero you have to the draft that just happened Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of philosophy, Brian, I want to ask you about ban philosophy. And with the most recent changes, how close were you to potentially no changes? Very close. I mean, we said that in the announcement. I, I think the decision was very close. And that's not to say that we don't believe that Lexi was the best deck pre-changes. Like we were, we were pretty much of that opinion. It was clear. But the data showed us that the margins were acceptable. It was a best deck that was leading to an interesting metagame. It was a best deck that was about to have a real wrench thrown in its plans 
and you know the ascension of Oldham to living legend is mm-hmm. again one of those just foundational shifts in flesh and blood metagames it changes absolutely everything what decks are viable you look at some of the just most fearsome predators of lexi in the old metagame azalea comes to mind azalea in the ranger mirror was pretty good into lexi but had to just dramatically warp their builds to even have a prayer against oldham then you have azuri who was just straight up good against lexi and you know all of this is like contextual lexi could change lexi can build a lot of different ways um but azuri very much beat up by oldham and then you get to dromai which you know that's one of those 90 90 matchups everyone's favored um but i i think there were some really good some really good predators of lexi that were being kept down kept down by oldham and then you throw in the additional spanner in the works of just four i, I want to say four new heroes because it honestly feels that way with both bolton and Leviya. it's it's just a very very big change that was coming and there was a lot of consideration to just doing nothing despite Lexi's power level. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you feel about Lexi as sort of that litmus test deck, right? That deck that these, you know, as we as we receive Dust Till Dawn and start experimenting with it, you know, Lexi is the question that all those heroes will have to sort of answer first, not to say that they won't have bad matchups existing somewhere else in the metagame, maybe less represented, but did you feel comfortable with these new Dust Till Dawn heroes being able to sort of make a, make room for themselves in a meta potentially dominated by Lexi as old him rotated out? Yeah, one of the things that we uh, got very right going into this metagame internally was where we saw Lexi, and that was as probably the best deck. It's, it's been something that has been on our radar for a very long time. It did not surprise us, and that is the format we were preparing for, testing for. Uh, one thing that did change was Oldham left a little bit sooner mm-hmm. than we expected him to. It just kind of went on a tear and finally closed some events right in a row. Uh, so that was a little bit different than the internal environment we were looking at. But if anything, that seemed to be uh, sort of another strike against Lexi rather than something empowering her. So, like I said, we were pretty prepared to go forward with DTD as it was. Uh, and I think we we were very clear about that in the language of our, our ban announcement. Like this was a borderline decision. We just wanted to make things if not actually be a little bit more open, maybe feel a little bit more open, like mm-hmm. maybe let players know it's okay to experiment with these new heroes. You don't have to default to Lexi. You can look at your matchups again. Uh, and I, I think the Bullseye Bracers band hopefully hits a sweet spot for doing that. Yeah, I have a conspiracy that it's a secret Kano buff and you're the inside man for Kano finally, you know, giving us a chance of you know, banning those Bullseye Bracers. Uh, I'm, all- g- I'm going to let you guys in on a secret. Oh, and shit. this is Here something that I've never told anyone before but the way we actually do band and suspended announcements at lss is i sit down and i decide if i personally hate you Ugh. and if i do then i target your hero and i make sure it never has any success and in the past brandon i hated you i didn't want you to have fun <laughs> and i took that out on kano but you know we went we did worlds together we covered the finals we kind of bonded a little bit and i said you know what this guy he deserves a break i'm going to make this decision solely based on buffing kano for brendan patrick and that's how we got to this point he has brendan- an olive branch in one hand and a dagger in the other with shroud of darkness also right. being printed in this hat how dare you it's that's true, true assassin he's a true assassin. but also brendan how are you going to feel when your opponent flips shock charmers instead of uh, bullseye braces now uh, it's not great to be honest it's not great. we'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> get into might that be, might be worse. Yeah. Might be worse. uh 
Brian, was Oldham a troublesome hero to balance around? Was it like was Oldham? Do you think it was a the the deck was too powerful and was it constricting design? Uh, I think there were aspects of Oldham that were too powerful. I, I think we, you know, the Crown of Seeds battle was a long one. There's a lot of things I love about Crown of Seeds. Crown of Seeds one of my favorite cards to play with in Flesh and Blood. There's a lot of bad things I think it did to the metagame. And I can, it's funny going back to my Magic days, my Possibly all-time favorite card in Magic is Sensei's Divining Top. That's yeah, a card that should great never card. be legal. Never be legal in any format. I accept that. I understand that. But I really, really love playing with it. And I think a lot of people felt the way about Crown of Seeds. It was a very satisfying card to play. But it, it messed up a lot of stuff. And those, those old hem decks were extremely challenging to give heroes tools to fight. But I, I don't think it did damage to the flesh and blood format. I think it was a, a good, hardy, powerful control deck that had ups and downs, but you know, mostly put off some pretty positive matchups. And we had to take some interventive steps, I would say, along the way. Things like the Winner's Whale ban or you know, whatever other host of bands you want to look at. Those were important. But I, I hope people are now starting to see patterns with how we manage these things. And that's how we like to do these things. We like to just kind of tweak power levels and bring things down a little bit to try and make compelling metagames. We don't want people to feel like they've had their deck snatched out of their hands and they can never play it again. Uh, and, you know, now Lexi is facing the same thing. This is just generally how we approach our top decks in Flesh and Blood. Uh, and so Oldham had to go through that process. But I think it it did it well. It, it was a fine portion of the metagame. I am not sad that it's gone. But it was it was acceptable, and uh, we learned a lot from it, and we'll move on from there. Can I ask a, a question then? You know, I have two questions actually, Brian. Off the back of that, one of them is in the lead up to it, people were talking about all the cards that that could be hidden, Lexi. You know, people were. I don't know. I feel like every every card within a Lexi playable deck got mentioned at some point. But um, were were there other cards that were on the table for you? rather than bullseye braces with the team were there other considerations or was bullseye braces kind of always thought of no we considered we considered everything of course we considered everything like it would have been it would have been poor development and poor uh poor game balancing to just be like we're banning this we don't care about anything else we thought very carefully about it we considered every card that you have seen proposed i promise we considered at one point endless arrow three of a kind codex of frailty you can go up and down the list like we thought about all of those options um but it ultimately came down to goals, came down mm. to what we were trying to do to Lexi with our bands. And it just seemed like Bullseye Bracers got us to that sweet spot that we really wanted to be. And one thing I regret about the announcement I put out is that I don't think we were clear enough about our intentions with regards to Azalea. Azalea is a very, very scary deck, like extremely scary. And in that Ben Suspended article, we sort of mentioned how we felt like her matchups had gotten better with the rotation of Oldham out of the format. But it's we, we still phrased it like we thought Azalea was a bit of an afterthought, like she didn't really matter in the process. It was all about Lexi. That's not true. Like very much Bullseye Bracers being taken away from Azalea is intentional because both of those decks could have been forces going to this metagame. And we're happy to have them be top tier decks. They just need to come down a little bit to the field. That's all. And Bullseye Bracers did that to both of those decks. 
Mm-hmm. That's a great shout. It's good to know. Uh, and then the, the other question I want to ask Brian is unbannings. I had an interesting conversation with James at Singapore where he he alluded to the fact that maybe you do think about unbannings quite highly when it comes to, you know, these kind of situations. Could it be time to unban cards? Is that is that something we might see in the future? You know, might we see a card like Plunder Run return? A hundred percent. Everything's on the table. We explore all these things all the time. And, you know, we mentioned in the bit about Blood Sheath Skeletta. We tried so hard to get that card back into the format. I I love Skeletta. Absolutely love it. Uh, one of my favorite flesh and blood cards of all time. And there were many, many times where we put in hours to try and see, is this the moment where we can return this card to the metagame? Is this how we're supposed to pray on Oldham? Is this how you know the, the metagame evens out by the presence of this, despite it being an absurdly powerful card? And the math just never checked out. And I will tell you that we will continue to evaluate all those options on the banned and suspended list and and see what can come back uh you know there's only a few that i am suspicious if they'll ever make their way back Mm. to the cc game awakening comes to mind like that card is just fairly silly i think skelet is probably never coming back at this point into cc but uh you know even then i don't never say never things can change and we'll always revisit that portion of the metagame The quest of Aspion. <laughs> so that card, um, it's it's effectively a Scalata, but does affect attack actions. Was there any consideration to maybe make that hit non-attack actions as well? And if so, could you have possibly made it, uh, you know, a limited to a one of in a deck so you could recreate the Scalata ex- the Scalata experience, but decrease the sort of you know actually increase the variance drastically with making the player draw it or suffer the opportunity cost of putting that in the arsenal for long periods of time in order to get off the combo? Because it looks like when I see this card, you know, it, it gives me the feeling of Scalata. I'm like, oh, it's almost Scalata. It's almost there. Did you think about that at all with this kind of card? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, of, of course we did. It's it's just like, like it's kind of facially there. X is a dangerous, dangerous value to have on cards. Yes, and we'll just start combining that with rune chant. Like we just know you can you can put 30 rune chants into play. That is something that is entirely attainable. And as long as that is true we can't hand you 30 resources. Like, it doesn't matter if we only do it once per game. That is a level of output that I I don't think the game can actually bear all that well. And, like, that's not to say it completely shatters the game and a good game will never be played again if that option is available, but it's going to be determinative of the vast majority of games it's involved in, and and that's the biggest problem with that effect. I want to talk about uh, Dust Till Dawn design, and I want to start with the macro design, and we, we touched on it a little bit, but this deep four-hero design, opposed to what we've seen in the past with supplemental sets like Everfest and Dynasty, which have a little bit for everybody. Is it is this a sort of an experimental supplemental set for Legend Story, and do you see it as a risky one as well, being a set that potentially players could look at and be like, okay... I could skip out on this one, right? You know, my my specific hero isn't serviced in a deep enough way where I feel like I need to buy this product. Is that considered at all when you when you switch the the sort of fundamental design that you have in Dust Till Dawn as opposed to what you've done in the past? Yeah, first I think every product we do is an experimental product. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't, what we do would be boring. Like we should always be looking for new things to do, ways to push the boundaries. Uh, ways to better serve players like all of that stuff should always be on the table and if we're just trouting like trotting out a formula every time i don't want to do this anymore like that's not what i signed up for that's not interesting to me and, and that goes as a designer or a player like it's just not fun to have kind of like figured out the code and just plug things in that's not what we're about we're going to look to push boundaries we're going to look to do different stuff all the time and i, I think 
I just want that to become more clear. And it's something I emphasize over and over and over because I do understand expectation of a supplementary set. A lot of people were like, oh, I'm going to get something new for my hero. And this didn't deliver on that. And I think the only thing that like we really did wrong there is maybe not emphasizing that you shouldn't have expectations going into a flesh and blood set. But I'm telling you now, get rid of your expectations. Anything can happen when we come to the table. That's supplemental sets. That's draftable sets. We're always looking at new stuff to do. Uh, as far as letting a product kind of pass by a player where it doesn't have something for them, I think that's okay. Like, you shouldn't have to buy everything we put out. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to drain your wallet. We're here to make game pieces that you are excited to play with and want to play with. And, you know, the fact that there is such a desire to see heroes uh, get new tools just shows that we're succeeding in terms of, like, engendering passion for these heroes and and making people love their classes where you know folks like us we go oh awesome new tools for the buyer we're gonna have to check that out bolton got some stuff we're definitely gonna build that deck let's see how uh you know these new heroes are working but some people just want more stuff for their hero like they're not interested in all of those things and that's fine we'll get to them and you know i could see on their point maybe being a little disappointed that not every set has something for them but when you kind of narrow your lane that's what you're signing up for. Not every set is going to have something that serves you, be it supplemental or anything else. Um, so I hope that those people are, you know, they, they have enough love for their heroes that they're willing to kind of go through those lean times. And we've seen it. Like, look at the Levia and Azalea players who now in back-to-back sets have just been completely served and are able to, you know, put forth their heroes with good faith, where for actual years, they were just jokes. They were laughing stocks. And... <laughs> Well, well, it'll always come back around, and uh, I just ask players for patience if that's the, the path they want to take. But I support that entirely. You don't have to buy every product. That's fine. Uh, I don't know if the Kano set is coming for all the people that were crossing their fingers on that one. Um, I'll say anecdotally, Brian, I think players are, me and Hayden have discussed, I think we like this set design more. It gets, it's more exciting. It's a lot more deep. Um, I think the biggest question comes to sustainability and profitability for the company versus a different set. But ultimately, to serve the player, uh, I would just say anecdotally to you, Hayden and I both enjoy this kind of design a lot more because it feels like there's a lot more to explore, right? Things go a lot deeper rather than, you know, I picked up Miraging Metamorph, which is just probably the best attack action in my in my illusionist deck. Um, I want to... What was sorry? I kind of I kind of lost myself there for a sec, but I just had a, sort of more more questions around the macro design of D D to D. Um, what what do you what about the credence to? I know you've responded to this on Twitter, by the way. The players say this is a this was a previously draftable set. I mean, it does look draftable, right? You you understand potentially why they would insinuate that or why they feel like that. It feels like it's so close. Maybe not in terms of balance, but at least in terms of you know the split of cards. There's four heroes, etc. Is was Dusseldon ever? a potentially draftable set nope nope it wasn't even considered it just wasn't like I, i'm not gonna I, I hope you guys realize like i'm i'm not here to lie to anyone i am very forthright i think i you know sometimes espouse both popular and unpopular opinions but i always try to be honest and true to myself it was never intended to be a draftable set that was not on the radar what it was intended to be was a set that was able to serve a bunch of different uh desires from players and look flesh and blood is doing very well right now it's growing it's growing fast and it's growing in areas that maybe folks like us don't necessarily directly engage with 
I do now because it's my job, but previously I would not have. It's growing in casual spaces and it's doing so well. It's doing it with UPF. It's doing it with commoner. It's doing it with cube. It's doing it with just kitchen table play. Like it's finding ways to succeed, which is actually what the game needed for that kind of long-term success. It doesn't need to just serve the competitive base as hard as possible. It needs to find ways into these more casual spaces and DTD reflects that. It's designed to have commoner cards. It's designed to have cube experiences. It's designed to have ultra flavorful cards. It's designed to have UPF cards. All of those cards are supposed to be there. And I think what you are seeing now is us shifting towards making sure we serve absolutely everyone with our sets. But at the same time, like we're competitive gamers. You guys know me. That's what I'm here for. That's what James is here for. And we're never going to forget about like making exciting stuff to put forth in a tournament. It's just about finding ways to also serve these other players on top of it. Yeah, I, I think me and Brendan, we, you know, despite being competitive content creators, despite being competitive players, we've been pretty outspoken, I think, on the pod about saying how important kitchen table is to the future of flesh and blood. We, we, it's you know, everything. It's yeah, everything. And I think... We probably haven't given enough shout outs to, to you and the design team and all of LSS for what you've done with adding more of these cards for all levels of players, all players who want to explore this game in different ways. So just want to take this time to, to shout that out as well, Brendan, because, you know, Brendan, we've both talked about this so much and I think this is finally, you know, we're seeing some of these cards. So Yeah, I great. mean, the competitive player base, like, although it's uh, we live in a, a, a loud echo chamber, it is an echo chamber, like we're a very small portion um, of the community, but... All right, let's get into the micro design. Shout out uh, Levia, Levia redeemed. I mean, this is probably the coolest, the coolest new design to happen to Flesh and Blood in a long time. This transitioning into a demi hero kind of feels like I don't know if you've played Grand Archive at all, but kind of feels like the leveling up mechanic there is like wh where did this design come from, and if if it's balanced, if it's successful, is it something that we could potentially see? Is like our heroes, you know, our Flesh and Blood heroes, they in a game right via your inventory they meet x criteria and they transition into y with z payoff is that is this something that could we we could see in the future of flesh and blood more and where do you see sort of this shadow demi hero right now like this this levia redeemed and blasphemous levia consumed yeah if we do a mechanic once there's always potential we could do it again now that doesn't mean like we want to run out and make sure everyone has their demi hero ready to go the reason this exists is because it told a really freaking cool story. Like that's basically where this came from. It's it's Genesis was in another concept, which I'm not going to talk about, but but may have been actually more wild than what this card actually ended up being. It was a, a real, real shot at something interesting um, that didn't work, but we refined that to the point where we did get to this uh, Leviah redeemed blasphemy consumed demi-hero and it just told this awesome story it was so fitting for leviah it was a hero that could bear some power creep because mm -hmm. this is power creep and it's almost pure sense like we didn't give you an additional you know uh deck building slot that's the only thing that prevents it from being pure power creep but it very much is in power creep territory and that's going to happen in our game it's something that we're cautious about but not allergic to um leviah was a really good home for some power creep without question and the concept was just amazing. And this is the card that we worked hardest on in this mm. entire set. And and it is a it was a challenging card. We spent so many hours making this card work to where it's just like, holy crap, this is telling an amazing story. All these abilities are exactly right. It's almost hard now to envision it 
any other way, but it went through so many iterations to get to this point. Um, and I, I agree, it's the most exciting card in DTD. It just opens up so much possibility. But the thing that will always stand out to me is just how well it tells Leviah's story mm-hmm. and is, is so unique to her her journey as a hero. So prior to the printing of Dust Till Dawn, what was holding Levia back competi- competitively? What were the actual limitations of that deck? Was it quantitative? Rolling ones. It was rolling? rolling? Okay. That's, that's it. I mean, like, if you... Even before DTD, if you were, like, the hottest hand in the West and could roll some solid numbers, you were going to have a very good win rate. The problem is, every now and then, you're going to roll a one. And the hero just kind of folds in that spot. And I will say, I think Leviah in the New World didn't solve that problem. But she's probably even better when she's not rolling once. Mm. And, and that's the thing that means you're now getting to these ranges where the only thing holding her back is herself. Whereas previously it was herself and the metagame. Mm. And now I think she's just fighting against herself. And if you find ways to mitigate your variants, choose your variant spots carefully. Understand what is correct to expose yourself to those type of things. I this is a very very real and very scary hero now. Yeah, I was going to follow up and ask is like do you do you think that brute is shackled towards this um reliance on rolling dice and you know specifically with the equipment for the extra action points or do you think that the future of brute maybe lies in not doing that playing cards like Hooves of the Shadow Please play, or playing things like Dread Screamer just you know more less lo- lower variance but maybe a more streamlined power level like is that is that the future of brute or are we going to you know also still be doing these sort of higher variance things and we keep a lower power level on the on the delta yeah i think both paths should be open and i I think both paths will continue to expand over time as long as they make thematic sense like brute should never have just thoughtful calculating uh you know perfect no variance game plans there should always be an element of risk reward and uh it needs to continue to be a part of their kit but it will certainly move all around the spectrum and just as the card pool grows larger too like there's more and more powerful brute cards that don't necessarily expose you to those type of things you know you look at hayden's preview card which is just <laughs> a incredible defensive tool for brutes like maybe one of the best defensive tools in the game honestly and as we expand the card pool it's just going to be more and more of that stuff and it does so in a way that is very like real to brute it is still random and like has the chance to completely devastate your opponent's hand or maybe you know you took the card they were playing on arsenaling out of their hand and you actually did nothing so it's got those ebbs and flows still i think it's a really good example of ways that we can stay true to brute but sort of just give them some more default powerful tools can i ask a bit of a selfish question i wanted to ask about my preview card glad you brought it up great segue scaling flesh flag uh such an awesome card i'm so grateful that i got to preview that card i have a question about that that someone asked me and i said great question so i'll pass the question on intimidate as a defensive mechanic or a mechanic that can be used on the defensive side is this something that had been thought about before is this the first time it had kind of been explored is it something that we might see again in the future so this was the first time that I was working on a Brute-centric set. Like, there were Brute cards, certainly, uh, in Dynasty, but it wasn't really focused that way. So I can't say if this is a mechanic that has come up before. Um, but when it came up as part of this set design, it seemed like a slam dunk to me. I just think it's a really, really cool idea. You know, I don't know if the whole Brute identity is supposed to be built around it, but in terms of a legendary man that feels very legendary to me like that's one of the things i really like for legendaries to do is sort of 
play on tropes and expand them a little bit and find new ways to use them. And you can see them with the uh, the bolt and chest in this set as well, The with the ability to get some defensive charging going on. A very, mm-hmm. very difficult thing to do, but you know, there's a there's a large payoff for it as well. And I, I like finding new ways to just kind of leverage existing mechanics when you get to the legendary space. Mm. Talk to me about the design of the new Prism. How how did you guys go about designing a balanced version of Prism with the sort of troublesome cards still existing? Right, you know, maybe uh, maybe the weapon is gone, but you still do have those auras with Spectra existing in the format. What was sort of the ideology behind the current uh, the current Prism design of Dustal Dawn? There there was a lot that goes in. Like I I could talk for. Probably days. I mean, I, I did talk for days about designing this prism and like getting to the place where it ultimately ended up. Um, one of the pretty clear goals for this prism, though, was that we wanted to make sure that her ability set was in no way additive to that kind of spectral plan. Mm. So you can do that plan. You can, you can build a deck that looks a lot like old prism. I think that's still very, very... Uh, you know, you haven't lost everything except Luminaris, but you can still get your Iris. You can put together your auras. That is still a deck you can do, but we're not giving you any help to do it. And you're going to do it at a lower <laughs> life total because that deck, I mean, look, young prism was showing up to events and doing okay. Like that should tell you that there is something there. And if you want to go down this aura route, you're going to have to do it on your own. Do I think it's going to happen at some points in the metagame? Yeah, I do. I, I do think it's still a viable strategy. Um, but we, we wanted to make sure that it was something that Prism was kind of doing on its own. We didn't want the hero to be about that. And that was one of the guideposts for making this version. Mm-hmm. How, how dangerous do you think this Prism's ability with the figments and the theoretical, po- or let's just say the possibility of being able to tutor your deck consistently? A very cool mechanic, by the way, being able to interact with your deck that much, you know, be searching through it that much. How, how, how fragile is that mechanic? Do you fear any sort of future... Um, I don't know, future design with that? Do you think it's a mechanic that can be a bit too powerful? I think this Prism is an extremely powerful hero. I had a, I had a Twitter uh, post today from someone. They tagged myself and James in their Twitter post. And then they basically yelled at us for three tweets about how dare we make Prism such a worthless hero with so little life. And uh, they're thinking about quitting the game because we obviously don't care about Light Illusionists. And I didn't, I didn't respond, um, but I had some thoughts and I, I look, if you could figure out this hero in a week, then you're, you're pretty big brained. I'll say that it is a challenging puzzle to put together. Her ability is inherently extremely, extremely strong, ridiculously strong. I would say. And she's not getting blank cards. She's getting real freaking cards off the back of already powerful heralds. Like some <laughs> Herald of Air Edition is one of the most powerful cards in the game. Again, like all these things come with hurdles, but the payoff on those hurdles is just freaking massive. It's so, so huge. And I think if you've written off Prism, you're making a mistake. That's all I'm going to say. Is the future of Illusionist design a move away from Spectra and Auras and towards Angel-centric design? I don't want to say that we never do Spectra again, but we all know the baggage that like Spectra brings with it. And there's a lot... Like, like I'm not even from a gameplay perspective. I, I think Spectra games could be quite interesting 
in a lot of instances, but they were warping and they are not at all intuitive under the rules. Like asking a new player to engage with Spectra is just so, so bad. And that, that is my biggest fault of the mechanic. It's not really a gameplay thing. I think, I think OG Prism made for some great games of Flesh and Blood, and they were very, very interesting. Um, but they were not intuitive, and that's my biggest gripe with Spectra. And it's not something we can really solve. Like, it, it, it just is what it is. That is how Spectra is supposed to work. That's how it's balanced. That's what it's designed to do. Um, and we're kind of saddled a little bit with that design. I... You know, again, never say never. I I do have a lot of fondness for the Spectra mechanic. It could be we go back to it, but this was not the time to go back to it. We needed to do something different with this iteration of Prism and show what else Light Illusionist could do. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the sort of reinvigoration of Bolton, right? Some people say that it got the Ranger treatment. I think that, you know, we talk, you talk about power creep, something that you, um, you, you don't try to do, but you're not allergic to. And I think that Bolton is an example of that. You know, we have seen cards, you know, previously the, the sort of, I don't know, the mechanic behind Bolton was charge a card, lose a card effect. Maybe use it in the future to get go again or some sort of ability, you know, off of beacon or something like that but now you actually you can charge a card and get a bonus on top of that a token or something was the, is this a version of trying to bring bolton up to par with the metagame because bolton is a hero that let's talk let's be real it has historically struggled yeah so it's really interesting sort of the nature of these monarch heroes and you know when we commit to doing this idea dust till dawn we know what the heroes we're working with are. We're going to make a new Shadow Room Blade. We're going to make a new Light Illusionist, and we're going to fill in the gaps for Leviathan and Bolton. But Leviathan and Bolton are two of the most dangerous heroes, I think, in all of Flesh and Blood. Like, their core kits are so, so strong. And with Bolton, it's particularly about three cards. It's mm-hmm. about Lumina Ascension. It's about uh, Spirit of Arena, And it's about Beacon. And those three cards in concert with each other have some of the highest output in all of flesh and blood like just the highest ceiling you can actually get to is some of the lumina ascension stuff and you know if you've played against good bolton players and there aren't too many because the incentives aren't there if you're a great bolton player you get to like the point where you have a decent deck not even a great deck you're a phenomenal player you've mastered everything inside and out and now you've gotten to the point where you have a decent deck but when you play against them they make that deck feel real scary and just very very challenging to play against at all points so the space with which we could expand bolton while those three cards are making up the backbone of his kit it was tight like and there were points in development where absolutely bolton would have been the best hero in the entire game had we put it out in the state it was in without question <laughs> and getting to a place where it wasn't just ripping the metagame open and you know completely redoing things that's that's not the treatment we're trying to give every time we reinvigorate these heroes like we knew we did that with lexi but it's not going to be what we do every time a hero gets pushed a little bit sometimes we want to take a C-tier hero and move it up to a B-tier hero. Sometimes a B-tier hero needs to get to an A-tier. And then sometimes we'll do the C to A thing. Um, but in this case, the goals were to make Bolton viable, give some life to some more mid-range Raiden-ish strategies, mm. very much open those up, but not just rip the doors off and make every game you play for the next six months be about Lumina Ascension and did I get just completely blown out of the water. 
Yeah, I mean, my follow-up question was, is a more consistent Lumina combo something that you want or something you want to avoid? Even if it's by a small percent, was it something that you feel like you wanted to add in Dust Till Dawn, or did you want to avoid that because it was already powerful enough, potentially? Yeah, it's not It's not so much that like I think it needed to be wholesale avoided. We just had to be very careful with it. And I, I don't think we wanted to make it the best deck in the entire game. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, uh, and I think that's you know, healthy. That's a good. That's a good choice. Yeah, but we want to, We do want to empower Bolton players. We want them to not feel like they're making a mistake when they register the deck. And I again, I I think we got to that place. That's going to be up to Bolton players and the metagame to decide. But I would expect to see more Boltons in the coming month. And granted, that's a very low bar. There was not a lot of Bolton presently. But if it was akin to like Katsu pre outsiders and Katsu post outsiders. That would be exactly the type of glow up I would look for for Bolton, where mm. it's just uh, you know falling at the middle of the metagame. Maybe a really talented group of players works on it for a pro tour, and it turns out that that's the deck they want to roll with. All those things seem within the range of possibilities for Bolton now. What are your metrics for a viable deck? Like, where are you, what power level are you trying to bring heroes up to? Are these? Are do you want these decks to all be sort of registrable at a tier four event without making a mistake? Like, what is the bar you're trying to bring heroes up to? Yeah, it's really hard to quantify. Like, I, I can't give you like any hard metrics to say. I, I don't. If you just ask for like a really simple definition of where I would like heroes to be, I don't want people to be self sabotaging every time they head out the door. Now, that doesn't mean you have to make the optimal choice, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can make a suboptimal choice, but where you're just actually impeding your ability to enjoy the enjoy the game with your deck choice, I think that's a real problem. And that's something we have to avoid for heroes in our game. Um, and I, I think Bolton and Levia both were very much teetering in that range. And I, I hope we've succeeded at getting them out of that range. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Vincent. Are you trying to give players any semblance of chain with the design of Vincent? Not really. Like I think Vincent is a, a different look at what Shadow Runeblade could do. There's elements of chain. Like I, I think in particular, like seeds being a real card again is mm-hmm. is interesting. That's that's compelling to me and it calls back to you know the OG Shadow Runeblade. But I, I didn't feel with Vincent that there was a lot of pressure to mirror the chain experience. I think it was supposed to offer something new, but still have those vibes. Like it's all about vibes with classes. Like it just has to feel like you're doing shadow rune blade ish type stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Vincent's a, a real winner as far as that goes. Yeah, I think you're correct. I think when you get down to the kitchen table level, which is, you know, we've all agreed is the level at which this game will succeed. If you ask somebody what what quantifies or what defines a shadow rune blade, they're not gonna say you know, drawing three, drawing three extra cards, drawing four extra cards, or banishing my deck, right? right? Like maybe banishing, yeah. but it's not like the when you when you sort of maybe go to a different level. It is just that, like I want to invoke, like with me, it's like I want to invoke invoke the or evoke the experience of drawing more cards than I should, because that is exactly what Shadow Room would be to me. But it doesn't actually sort of, um, it doesn't bring out the class. It does. It's not that is not a Shadow Room Blade thing to do. It is just a chain thing to do at some point. Um, yeah, what sort of play patterns do you really have in mind for Vincent? Where, where do you think Vincent will operate in the metagame? I'm not going to answer that one. I was <laughs> yeah. very happy to talk about the other heroes. I think Vincent is more of an enigma, and I don't want to steal any of the joy of figuring that one out. She's weird, man. She's a weird, weird hero, and I think she's very different from 
Jane, and maybe any other hero in Flesh and Blood. She operates on a strange axes, and at the same time, just like if I told you we're going to make a hero that lets you just play all of your powerful spells without paying their resource costs, you would be like, well, have you ever played a TCG before? Are you an idiot? <laughs> like, why would you do that? Um, you're going to have to figure out why we did that and wh- why we felt comfortable doing that. People might people might start with eloquence tokens. Mm. Uh, I, I, yeah. What was that? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, all right. I, I have a question I want to ask then that's about yeah. design re- relation to Vincent. It's something I noticed immediately when I saw Vincent for the first time. So, Vincent has this, ma- it's mandatory, right? It's not optional, this effect to banish at the start of the turn. I wanted to know, is that is that a, a design philosophy that might, you know, help players sort of thematically, you know, sort of align with Vincent? Is it a balance thing? Is it a piece that is around kind of navigating and signposting for players? Or is it kind of all of the above? All of the above. Yeah, I think it does all those things. And it's also like very core to the thematic um just like sort of self-destruction you know giving yourself over to shadow vibes that were really critical for this hero to uh embody and yeah i i i expect that it's going to be a challenging hurdle for people to understand how to play with but it it certainly points you in a direction it tells you like here's your goal and the play pattern when you get down to it it's pretty clear right like you want to get rid of your rune gate stuff banish it get benefit from it and then get these free spells and I, I i think it's critical that you do leave signposts for your players to follow you leave breadcrumbs uh but the nuts and bolts of it that's something that's going to have to be figured out and vincent has a lot of nuts and bolts that's for sure <laughs> great challenge i want to talk about the design of flesh and blood moving forward do you think that in the in the future of flesh and blood is it possible you will design do you design cards more focused around fun or more, more focused around balance and competitive viability because i think in magic it's called fire um their version of design i don't know if it was you know first started in throne of eldraine but you know where they do emphasize this this fun aspect of cards maybe leading to a less balanced game overall what what is sort of the the future and direction of flesh and blood because it's hard to evaluate the dust till dawn because it just came out but looking at some of the heroes that have existed in flesh and blood's past things like chain OG Prism, Starvo, it feels like we've moved away from that sort of design. You know, it's designed that is very asymmetric, one-sided, chain drawing drastically more cards than its opposing deck, you know, Prism locking its opposing deck out of action points, and Starvo effectively winning the game in, in deck building. Um, what is, like, the future design space of Flesh and Blood? So, I love that you mentioned fire design, because it is such, like, a hot talking point in the Magic community, and a lot of people sort of pinpoint it as the moment that things went downhill for magic. It, it's very silly, though, because, it, like, all this was was, like, an internal moniker. And if you've and if you spent any time in corporate environments, like, that's just how this shit goes. You make up some moniker, you use that to focus people on your goal for a little while, and, like, do I think they sat down and were like, well, everything's fire design now, and we have to change everything, and so we're never going to make a card. No, it was just, like, something they were talking about and something they were using to focus their thought process. And it's it's not to blame for the downfall of magic. Corporate greed is to blame for the downfall of magic. Like that's very, very clear to me. So I I think like worrying too much about are we entering a fire state of design is first, it's not happening. Second, it's just kind of smoke and mirrors and not a real thing anyway. Um, but 
to that point, I do think we're thinking about fun more than we ever have mm-hmm. before. And I think it's something that is coming to mind in terms of, um, you know, making opening packs more fun, making playing games more fun, making limited environments more fun. All of these things, like, that's what this is. This is this is a game. Like, you're supposed to enjoy yourself. And it's one of the things that, you know, really burnt me out on my relationship with magic was that there was there was no fun in it anymore for me and when i realized that that's when i was like okay this is something i need to separate myself from and i don't ever want flesh and blood players to go through that that being said some will it's just the nature of life like we Mm -hmm. grow we change as people some people will opt out of flesh and blood and you know i'm sad for it but i do know it's going to happen but i don't want it to be something that's like they they just get bogged down by the angst of it all. Like I just want yeah. there to be those moments of joy present. And and that is very much informing design. And it all comes back to like what it's been since I started with LSS is just like thinking about players all the time. Like what are players going to enjoy? What's going to be their reaction to this? Is this something that they're going to appreciate? And more than fun, I think it just continues to be more and more player focused. And, you know, the definition of player is expanding, as we talked about. It means more players than ever before, but it's it's not subtractive, it's additive. Mm. And we can make cards for both of those players, those player groups at the same time. I'm confident in that. There's no reason to abandon one for the other. And I think, again, when we talk back to like Magic Shift, they they really did abandon one group for the other and chose to focus on only one aspect of playing the game. That's not something we ever want to do. It's, it's about serving all of our players at the same time. Is a non-rotating format uh, as a primary format and you know right now pretty much a singular format, is that a burden to design? Does it limit design in, in, in a meaningful way um, and in a negative way? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a burden. It's definitely a different set of restrictions that you have to operate under. But I, I think a positive set of restrictions, you have to think very carefully about things like power creep and, um, you know, what you're doing in combination with every card that has ever existed. That is certainly a large burden. But because we do have this kind of siloed nature of our game where it is very hero centric, it's a little easier than it would be in a game, you know, like Magic, where there is just infinite crossover and you could combine any two cards that exist should you want to. We have more rails than that. So I I am confident that we'll be able to continue designing in this non-rotating space for a very, very long time. Mm. We we have good systems in place. We know how it works and it it works for our game. Yeah. Speaking of those rails and hero-centric design, are you happy with the current Living Legend system? And how would you, like, what, what sort of advice would you give to players that maybe feel sort of left out or punished when their hero is Living Legend to pretty much no means that by no means of their own right via a competitive circuit or you know competitive formats you know things that exist very far away from them their cards that you know maybe they've specified a specific hero they are an illusion well illusionist you know it's just been reprinted um but let's say it was the old shadow room label chain you know their cards effectively leave playability for a long period of time and maybe they feel a bit disenfranchised uh by the game are what are your thoughts on the current living legend system and how it potentially affects casual players I think how it affects the CC environment is good. Mm-hmm. I think it is very much working right now. It's, it's, we're in like the fully realized stage 
of Living Legend. Now we have our first returning class to the game, and that's always the plan. There's always going to be, you know, a, a plan to bring these heroes back. There'll be another elemental guardian someday. We all know that it's not going to be a forever thing. Um, but in that interim period where those classes don't exist in the primary format, that's really about just offering players more ways to play and you know letting those cards have value. And that goes back to just like the goals of what we're trying to do. It goes back to making cards for cubes. It goes back to making cards for build your own limited formats. It goes back to starting to get pieces for the living legend format in place, which we are very much moving towards now as we get more and more living legend heroes. Um, so it, I think we just need to provide more space for those players to still use those cards. And then it's completely fine. Mm-hmm. Like we all appreciate a break every now and then. And look, I know some prison players left the game after she hit living legend. I hope they're coming back now. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. That's something we're going to have to see as we go through this realization of Living Legend. But we'll keep building out gameplay systems to try and give those players other avenues to explore. And, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of the impact on CC, though, I'm, I'm really happy with the way the Living Legend system has played out. Yeah, I think it has played out uh, very well so far. It has made some of the most beneficial and most impactful changes to the CC format, um, at least in recent history. What are your thoughts on the current changes to Blitz? And do you have any concerns that Blitz is sort of a a micro format of CC now potentially can cannibalize that format? Because, you know, the big differentiator between Blitz was was no sideboard, right? And you had this Hearthstone-esque format. You did have equipment and that was a version of that. But now adding in the ability to actually sideboard specific cards in do you think that blitz maybe just comes like becomes quick micro cc or is it still a distinctive and sort of its own format i think it is very distinctive there's a lot of heroes which are only available in Mm -hmm. blitz there will be more heroes which are only available in blitz as time goes on to me the biggest hallmark of the format was not the sideboarding decisions it was the lower life total and really getting to that compressed end game state much much earlier Mm -hmm. and you know, some of us love the end game state of flesh and blood. Some of us love the mid game state. Like, I, I think it's totally fine that it just sort of appeals to different players. And the main thing is keeping it a pick up and play experience. And all of the changes that we're trying out here in this experimental skirmish season seven, they're all extremely, extremely focused on keeping that pick up and play, keep it simple go copy a deck list and just submit all the cards and you'll be totally fine nature of blitz as Mm -hmm. it was and and that is again a reason why we did not instill a cap when we came to deck sizes we just wanted you to be able to just have all your cards and play them so you don't have to make sideboard decisions if you don't want to you can just have you know a a 40 card deck with 11 equipment or 12 equipment now if that's what you want or you can have 44 cards that you submit in every single matchup and you have your eight cards beyond that like those are all options that you're allowed to do and if you're looking for something with a little bit more customizability and a little bit more gameplay focused if you are a spike who's looking to win an event that path is open to you as well that that's the goal with those changes you talked about um you know the sort of the the bar that we want to bring every hero up to is to make it so players are not actively sabotaging themselves when when they bring that hero to an event do you think in current flesh and blood if someone brings riptide to an event are they sabotaging themselves maybe the same question would go for arachne i think no with riptide i think riptide is a very powerful hero that plays a very linear specific gameplay style and would need some very specific matchups to succeed but if Riptide gets those matchups, 
pretty real hero. And I think that is actually doubly true in Blitz, where his ability is taking off a much greater percentage of your starting life total. It Riptide's a threat in Blitz, as far as I'm concerned. I think mm-hmm. a very real hero. Uh, Arachne has... Uh, I don't think you're sabotaging if you're playing Arachne, mm-hmm. but you should be playing Azuri. Like that's, that's really what it comes down to, is that she's a better assassin right now. That will not always be true. There are very much plans for Arachne. Arachne is not going to be completely left behind. We know everything in Flesh and Blood is about ebbs and flows. At some point, Arachne is going to have options not available to Azuri, which should give, again, a really good home for Arachne. I think the biggest problem with Arachne is that where the things that assassins punish, Arachne can still very much punish. So it's not a strict mistake to bring Arachne to a certain event. It's just that Azuri probably punishes them a little bit harder. And and that's mm-hmm. the biggest problem with the class right now. Last question for me. What are your thoughts on the removal from of Blitz from the, the World Championships format? Is Blitz no longer required um, as sort of that checklist that you need to check off to be the best, the best player in the world, to be the most well-rounded player in the world? What changed? I think for this year, it was just about this skirmish season seven experiment and Mm -hmm. not having enough time to act on that experiment and it kind of put us in a really hard spot where it's if this is really successful and initial response has been overwhelmingly positive we'll see how it goes when these games are played but if this is really successful and then we end up with a format at worlds that people are into then awesome we nailed it if this is an absolute disaster and everyone hates it and we force you to play it before we have gotten this information, that could be really bad. If we uh, say that we're right now, we just say we're going to offer Blitz as it was pre-Skirmish Season 7 at Worlds, and then everyone loves Skirmish Season 7 and we have to revert to the old format, that's going to be really bad. It was just kind of a mess given what we wanted to do. But at the same time, it wasn't something where we wanted to shelve our goals for the Blitz format and shelve this exploration of the Blitz format till after Worlds. It was something that we really wanted to do now and, you know, really explore, really see if we could find ways to just improve Blitz that little bit to really get the more competitive side more interested in it. Um, So I don't think Blitz is gone from Worlds forever. It's certainly not gone from competitive play. Uh It's just in this instance... It wasn't a good fit, given everything we had going on. And it, it's a bit of a shame, because I do think Blitz is an important part of the world's format. But it just wasn't meant to be this year, and there's, there's always next year. But Blitz is, I mean, my favorite calling I've played, or high level of interplay so far, was the team Blitz calling. Two, two of my favorite sure. things, teams and, and Blitz. But um, I think the, the way I'm looking at it for Worlds is last year for Worlds, you know, we had a format that was a little bit more stagnant. You know, we've been living with Uprising for a while. We're going to have a fresher limited format. We're going to have a fresher class constructed format. So there's still a lot of challenges for players. You know, last year Blitz was a was a challenge for players. You know, maybe CC was a little bit more solved. Maybe the draft format, you'd gotten all your reps in for Leal and you could take that with you. But you had to spend time on Blitz format. I mean, we got to the end of the day and Blitz really did make or break that, that top eight in the end that, that got to Worlds. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I look, I'll tell you right now, y'all have your work cut out for you when it comes to worlds. You'll you'll be working with some new stuff. And uh, you yeah, you better be ready to prepare. And I think you'll be thankful that Blitz is off the table. Mm. 
Yeah, imagine have, bubbling out to blitz. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you, Brendan. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, cheers. <laughs> um, I, have, I have one more question on the philosophy side uh, to add on to Brendan's, which is I want to ask a question about consistency because it's something that sits in my mind so often with flesh and blood is the role of consistency in this game. And a lot of the most powerful strategies we've seen in Class Constructed have resol- revolved around consistency. Is that something that you want to see less of in, in flesh and blood in design? It's hard to say. I, I think it has its place. I think consistent strategies will always have their place. At the same time, I, I think they should basically stay as is, but I sort of want to see the inconsistent strategies come up to meet them. And what that means is that we're probably going to have to live with a little bit more of those variance games. You know, things like Levi rolled all sixes this game and Bolton found all the pieces of the combo early on. Like those things are an important part of the process. There needs to be uh, a little bit more variability in our game, I think. There needs to be some new faces coming to the top. Not to say I don't love all of our present champions, but you know, you want to, you really want to make room for that underdog story. I think that's an important part of every TCG. Yeah. And it's, it's not about making consistency less of a thing in flesh and blood. You should always have that option. Just sometimes it should fall short when faced with the ceiling of these inconsistent decks that have just this absurd power output in their best form. Yeah. Well, looking at the current, uh, you know, consistent, the results of, you know, tournaments um, and just the competitive scene of Flesh and Blood, do you think that it is prohibitive? Because we do see very, very familiar faces in the top eight every single time. Is the current state of Flesh and Blood a bit too consistent? Do you think it's prohibitive to uh, new aspiring players? I think it is slightly too consistent. Yes, I do. Um, and I, I think that is something that, you know, it's going to be a process for all of us, we, we have to be comfortable designing into those spaces to add a little bit more variance. We as players have to be accepting of a little bit more variance. And it, it's, you know, I, I feel it. I, it's strange. In the period where I was sort of one foot in, one foot out of Magic, and I was playing mostly Flesh and Blood, I would occasionally go back and play a game of Magic, and my brain would just melt. Like something I had lived with for 30 years, legitimately 30 years of gameplay that I had just accepted, internalized totally found as a valid point of the game system and i still do but i just wasn't as good at dealing with the flute the flood the screw like it just hit me very very differently when i returned to magic so we've gotten very used to playing a game absent those elements and i do think you know i'm not trying to say we need mana screw and flood that's not what i'm talking about but there do need to be points of variance in our game you should always be participating in the game you should always be playing the game the outcome should always be something you feel you have influence over but there do need to be those moments of variance that have influence over games cool thank you great answer yeah no that that's that's awesome well brian Thank you so much for coming on. I think that I genuinely think that Legend Story got very lucky with you. You are a fantastic voice and spokesperson for the game. And we really appreciate you coming on, you know, our podcast for the second time to dive so deep into what really makes this game tick and what the future the future might be. So I just wanna I just wanna Bro, I feel time. like this is like my fourth time. Haven't I been on this cast like so many times at this point? Like I think once. you've been on you've been on the channel you've been on the channel a few times yeah I think it's the second time on the podcast but I've I've roped you in for a few things okay maybe maybe that's what I'm thinking of maybe I'm just conflating <laughs> I'm all being sabotaged over here <laughs> that's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> yeah, but we really appreciate you coming on. I genuinely think that like uh, for a game like Flesh and Blood to have someone like you who is so vocal, who is so passionate, I know we've seen that. And, you know, sort of the the genesis of this game, like James was very much that person, very much out in the limelight, sort of being that um, that sort of bastion for the game. And I think you've taken a part of that mantle and it's really, really important. And uh, yeah, we got a lot of great info, uh, great info today. Yeah, I will tell you that, uh, you know, James wants to still very much do that. He's just the busiest person on the face of the earth. And <laughs> I am I am happy to take some of that load off his shoulders. You know, I can't replace him. He is he is the grandfather of this game. He his passion inspires me, right? It's like where where I come from, where I, I am able to throw myself into this to that extent because I trust him and I, I saw what he brought to the table. Uh and the only reason he's not here on Arsenal Pass instead of me is that the guy just doesn't have enough hours in the day. Uh, to be able to do all the things that are that are asked of him, but I, I am very happy that I'm able to uh, speak for his game, and you know he he gave me a great foundation to play with. It honestly feels easy to me. Like you get set up for success when you're dealing with a robust robust game like Flesh and Blood, and more importantly, a company like LSS that is actually focused on like just making a great game and serving players. Like that's that's all I ever wanted from a TCG, and they they try that every single day without fail so it, it makes my job very easy awesome hayden anything you want to close with no thanks for coming on brian it's, it's always a pleasure i was gonna say if you do want to follow uh brian on twitter there's you know some, some yeah, good tweets from just, <laughs> no, just, yeah. stop, just stop following me just, I, I think i just need to i need to fuck off into the sun and just go, go away from social media it's for yeah. it's for my own health just use All this right. episode you can follow yeah, use this episode yeah, as a confirmation that if you tag Brian with negative feedback, he will read it, internalize it, and then bring it up later on somebody's podcast. Yes. So that is a way I to read, get at him. I read everything, bro. Like I don't think people understand this. I read, I read the purple Discord. I read your Discord. I read ten other Discords. I read everything that's posted on Twitter. I, and it's not because I am sick in the head. I mean, I am, but it is, it is more because I feel like that's such a critical part of my job. Like I need to understand what people are saying. If I'm not listening to what players are saying, then I'm just failing. And uh, sometimes the psychic damage from doing so is yeah. intense, but I am willing to bear it. And uh, yeah, I, I read it all. And then I passive aggressively bring it up on future. Podcasts, <laughs> awesome. Well, on Twitter, it's at Brian go Hayden is at fan underscore Dale, Matt Brennan, APG. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, if you like this episode, the number one thing you can do for us is leave us a review at rate this podcast.com slash Arsenal pass, Apple podcasts, or Spotify. You can check out the Arsenal pass Patreon as we start to wind up for national season. And then of course, worlds in Barcelona going to have deck techs and deck guides going up there. And the support helps us keep doing what we're doing. Thank you all so much for listening we'll see you next week